You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood listeners. I just realized that this is the 30th episode of this podcast to be released, and that's really exciting. It feels like just yesterday that I was nervously working through the first few episodes of season two and thinking, what am I going to talk about next? And here we are, 30 episodes in. It's been quite a journey so far, and in particular, the past couple of episodes have been an adventure unto themselves because we're in the middle of a little bit of a mini-series within the season. In episode 7 and 8, and now in episode 9 of this season, we've been talking about how to deal with sin in various contexts, and the predominant theme so far running through all of that has been that God is immensely merciful. Though he is justified in judging our wrongdoing as human beings when it's necessary, and because he also does love the victims of sin just as much as those perpetrating it, he fundamentally loves to forgive us because he loves us. Offering mercy to every human being, for whatever they may be guilty of, is his ultimate desire. We've also taken some serious looks at sin and forgiveness, repentance, confession, absolution, and without a doubt, all of those themes have to be in our minds today as we grapple with the most challenging part of this three-part series, Confronting Sin in Other People. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, I recommend that you do so before you get into this one, because it's the continuation of those same trains of thought. And also, we can't confront sin in other people, at least in a righteous way, without mercy being at the core of this process. If we proceed without that, we've lost touch with the heart of God, and nothing good can possibly come from whatever we do next. The only way for me to safely and righteously interact with another person in their sin is to first deal with my own sin, and by that I specifically mean I have to get it into both my head and my heart that I am no better than anyone else, and I mean anyone else. I have my own flaws, faults, addictions, habits, character deficits. I should probably stop making this list, but I assure you that it goes on. I have problems. We all have problems. We all struggle with stuff, and the thing that makes that very complicated is that we all struggle with slightly different stuff, which makes it very easy for me to justify myself in my own eyes by saying, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. I may struggle with this, but at least I'm not dealing with that. And that's all completely bogus. There's nothing anywhere in the Bible saying that different types of sin can be compared with one another or establishing some kind of hierarchy that this is kind of bad, but this is way worse. In fact, it says in James chapter 2 verse 10 that if you break one commandment, you're guilty of breaking them all. And that's because the commandment behind all of them is to love God through obedience and to love other people through mutual submission and service. So nobody is better or worse off than anyone else. And anyone who thinks that they don't sin or that they have a leg to stand on to condemn other people, anyone who hasn't dealt with the truths that we talked about in the previous episodes is fundamentally not a Christian. Also in episode 7, which was four weeks ago now, I talked for a few minutes about the answer to the question, what is sin? And at that time, I restricted my response to the 10,000-foot theoretical level by dealing with why sin happens and what's going on inside our hearts when it's taking place. 
But now I'd like to go in kind of the opposite direction with that same question and ask what is or isn't a sin? Because if we're going to be talking about confronting it in other people, we need a rule book, right? So which actions are allowed, which ones are forbidden? In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23, the Apostle Paul tells us that, quote, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. In other words, it's not about a list of actions that we may or may not take, and asking, is this allowed or will I be punished for this, is fundamentally the wrong question to ask. Instead, the Bible speaks more to the motivations for and the results from our actions, and that's more a determiner of what is or isn't sinful. I talked about this for a bit back in Season 2, Episode 14, and the example that I used at that time was murder, because I think we can all agree, if something is murder, it is sinful. But the problem is that it's not always murder when one person takes another person's life. There are instances where it might happen by accident, or in self-defense, or in combat, and we have different words for all of those circumstances. What makes it murder, what makes it inherently immoral, is the person's intentions, the situational context, and so forth. Thus, what is or is not a sin is largely determined by people's consciences and by the voice of God through his Holy Spirit speaking to them in their hearts. If he says, no, don't do that, then whatever it is, it's sinful, even if he says yes to somebody else doing the same action. Another way that same dynamic works out is if the Bible contains a clear reference to this is wrong, don't do this, but there are so few of those. Once again, scripture will tell you don't murder, but it won't define exactly when killing another person is murder and when it might be justified. And the same goes for every other category of sin. It says don't steal, but for instance, is it stealing to take something that should have been yours in the first place? If you're just taking it back, is that theft? That's a really gray area. And there are thousands of philosophical slippery slopes just like that one that we could go down. And that's without even getting into the minefield of sexual ethics or how to handle money or the gray areas of what to do in situations that the writers of the Bible never even dreamed of. Is it permissible to clone a sheep or have a blood transfusion? What's a biblical stance regarding tobacco products? Different groups have different answers to those questions, and there's no clear line in the sand, at least not one that was drawn by the actual Bible, other than what we might call the love test. Is this or that action the best way to serve others, to look out for their interests, to show them dignity and goodness? Or will this action advance my agenda and benefit me more than it helps anyone else? That's usually what it boils down to. Now, this isn't to say that it's all relative, that sin doesn't exist, and that people can and should do whatever they please. God does have standards of behavior that he expects us to conform to. What I'm trying to hammer home here before we move on is that the moral landscape in Christianity is far more vague than a lot of people try to make it out to be by writing a simple list of do's and don'ts. It's very difficult for one person to define the boundaries of sin for another person, and we need to keep that in mind later in this episode. There's a commonly misquoted scripture, the first verse of Matthew chapter 7, you've probably heard people quote it as, the Bible says, judge not. 
Now, the actual quote is a little bit more nuanced. What Jesus said in this passage was, don't judge or else you will also be judged. The measurement you use to judge others will be used to judge you. In other words, Jesus wasn't forbidding all forms of judgment, especially if we distinguish here between judgment meaning condemnation versus judgment meaning simply determining whether something is good or bad. We make those kinds of judgments all day and to a very real degree that's something we're supposed to do. What Jesus was warning us about here, rather, is the cost of hypocrisy. If we insist on dishing it out, we'd better be able to take it. That's why in the same sermon, Jesus went on to say that you have no business trying to help someone else take a speck of dust out of their eye if you have a whole wooden plank in yours. Notice, though, that he didn't say, so don't bother trying to help. Instead, he said, yes, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you can help your neighbor get the speck out of theirs. The idea is that once you deal with your junk, your perspective isn't all messed up anymore. It's like the directions they give you every time you get on a plane. In the event of an emergency, part of your job may be to help the person in the seat next to you put on their oxygen mask. But you have to put your own mask on first. The same goes for helping your neighbor avoid sin. We have to repent and wrestle with our own issues before we can demand repentance from others. This might be the area where modern Christianity has done the most harm, or maybe the most common reason why people walk away from their faith. There's a lot of hypocrisy in the church right now, and there has been for a while, because we tend to ignore our own sins and focus all of our corrective energy on those around us. Worse yet, a lot of people tend to harp on the very sins that they themselves are enslaved to. I can't count how many times I've heard, for instance, of a preacher who made a career out of preaching this hard line against sexual immorality, only to be exposed later for the exact same actions. I don't want to dwell too much on this other than to say that hypocrisy is a huge and pervasive problem in modern Christianity, as is our lack of real love for and commitment to the people we're trying to correct. So dear listener, if you've experienced that or witnessed it in any way, I want to tell you on behalf of my well-meaning but very misguided Christian brothers and sisters that I'm sorry and we should be better at this. I don't have time to get all into that right now. All I can do is promise you that some of us are working to change the way we do this and also to ask your forgiveness on our collective behalf. So now that we've spent multiple episodes contemplating our own sinfulness and thinking about God's mercy now that we've accepted that the people around us are no better or worse than we are, that they merely happen to sin in different ways, and now that we've walked through forgiveness or we've at least started that aspect of our journeys with God, it is now reasonably safe for us to move into the part of this episode that I promised you over a month ago. Let's talk about how to help others recognize and repent of their sins. Not in a spirit of self-righteous condemnation, but because we love them and we genuinely want the best for them. If we don't have that in mind in any of the following scenarios, we've completely lost the point and we need to go back to the beginning. Those are sort of the ground rules here. So, first scenario. What do you do about a fellow Christian who has a sin problem? Maybe one that's negatively affecting you or other people, or maybe they're just hurting themselves. But the thing is that they're unaware of it, or at least they seem like they're unaware of it. They may be in denial, and maybe they've just never had someone come to them and say, hey, 
This is not good. In this kind of situation, most people have one of three gut reactions, none of which are actually very helpful. You may be familiar with the classic fight, flight, or freeze response. In a potential conflict situation like the one I just described, each of us has a tendency toward one of those three extremes. Either we're going to blow up at that person, or run away and cut them off and have nothing to do with them, or we're going to act like the problem isn't happening and just try to carry on with our lives. The problem is that this is a fellow Christian, and how they act reflects back on us and ultimately on Jesus. And on top of that, we are, in a very real way, responsible for their spiritual well-being. So is it right to let them keep walking the destructive path that they're walking on? Jesus doesn't seem to think so. In chapter 18 of the book of Matthew, which by the way is the exact same chapter as the parable of the unmerciful servant that I mentioned last episode, Jesus laid out exactly how to approach such a person. He said, first, go to them privately and make your case. Now, the point here isn't to shame them or to prove how right you are, or even having an opportunity to vent your anger. This is about loving them so much that you have to say something. It's getting on their team, watching their back, and getting down in the trenches with them. And I will add that if you're not going to be in the trenches with them and back them up and genuinely help them deal with whatever you want to confront, then you're not ready to do this process with them. So you go and you make your case in private so as not to embarrass them in front of other people. And if they see your point, great. At that point, it's cause for celebration. If they don't see your point, that's when you take a mutual friend or two with you. And in case you're wondering, these people should also be truly committed to helping this wayward person in whatever ways they can. If they're not, then they're also not the right people for the job. By the way, it's very possible that in the process of getting someone to back you up, you might find that you were wrong the whole time, and it's always important to remain correctable while we correct others. Be willing to see that person justified and your own concerns dismissed if that really is the truth. Anyway, if you confront them multiple times with multiple people, and they still don't see the problem here, that's when things get a little bit rough. At this point, the community gets involved, and the unpleasant task of arbitrating between your point of view and theirs now falls to the entire church, however big or small your community happens to be. What's on the table in terms of consequences is expulsion from the group. What we're talking about in technical terms is excommunication. Now, oftentimes, that word in particular is seen as a heavy-handed judgment that's dished out by some politically-minded archbishop in a faraway city, but that wasn't the original purpose. In biblical times, the idea behind expelling someone from fellowship was twofold. On the one hand, of course, it served to uphold the standards of the community, but on the other hand, and perhaps more importantly, it was designed to motivate this sinning friend toward repentance. Turning away from sin and back toward God also meant being re-included into fellowship with God's people, and that's a very crucial point. This whole process exists not to weed out sinners and get them away from us, but to help them be fully included again in our fellowship without anything in the way that's going to hinder our relationship with them. Now, this was a far more serious matter back then than it is today, because back then there was only one church. Nowadays, you can just move along to the next congregation, sometimes on the very same street corner, and while that's a good thing when the church goes on a power trip, 
The downside is that a person whose habits are genuinely destructive can always find someone willing to pat them on the shoulder and tell them, hey, God is okay with this, even if he's not. I should also mention that this process applies to anyone in a community of faith, from new members all the way up to leadership. The Bible does caution against correcting our leaders in a harsh way, and it also warns that we need to substantiate the accusations that come against them. But it absolutely does hold leadership to account, not only for their own actions, but even for the actions of those serving under their authority. In fact, it holds them to a higher standard of holiness than everyone else. It also requires the church to publicly remove them from leadership if they become disqualified due to their unrepentant sins. Too often, a church will cover up the sins of its leaders, thinking that they're doing the church or doing God a favor by trying to protect his image. But unfortunately, that's the exact opposite of what we're supposed to do. If a leader can't be trusted, we can't let them keep abusing their authority. Even beyond that, it's not enough to simply remove them from that authority. Instead, it's necessary to let the people know just how and why this leader is no longer to be trusted so that nobody else gets hurt. That's the biblical standard, and I urge any church that hears this to adopt it as your standard as well. We should be the most transparent people in the world, and if people see us doing that, they may actually trust us again, which would be great. As you might have guessed, the Matthew 18 process, as it's commonly called in Christian circles as a sort of shorthand, only works for someone who identifies as a Christian, someone that we are already in community with. We have the authority to speak to other Christians about their sin in this way because they're under the same rules that we are. They serve the same God, they have the same Bible, and so forth. Yes, we have differences of interpretation about a lot of things, which is why I advise us all to be very cautious about what we do and don't call sin in the first place, even within our own circles. However, the rules become very different the moment we start to talk about sin happening outside of the Christian community. There's a reason that we don't see Jesus' followers ever demanding that the Greek and Roman world start to live by their values. And it's not simply that they were afraid of the inevitable PR backlash that would result, although that would have been real. No, it's because it wasn't their job, and it's not ours either. Simply put, we are not the world's morality police. So often Christians act as if they're shocked that people who don't follow Jesus and don't claim to follow Jesus are not acting like Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised or scandalized or even offended by that. It's to be expected. They don't play by our rules, and no amount of any kind of coercion from us is going to change that. The only thing that will change it is if they start following Jesus for themselves. Anything less than that heart transformation on their part is just going to make them pretend to be Christians, and that's not helpful for anyone. Paul addressed this uneasy tension in his first letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 5, he deals with a case of discipline that does result in excommunication. The short version of the story is that a member of the church, and that's a very important detail here, was involved in a relationship with his own stepmother. So Paul had to uphold the standard of behavior, which is to say that incest is wrong, and this fellow couldn't be a member of the church in good standing until he addressed that behavior. In case you're wondering, by the way, the sequel to this letter, 2 Corinthians, includes a message about forgiving the same guy because he had turned his life around, which goes to show you that anybody can be forgiven. 
right after saying that the church should have nothing to do with this guy who was belligerently holding on to his sin, Paul says this, When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, or who are greedy, or who cheat people, or who worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer and yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such a person. By the way, that was 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 9 through 11 and I was mostly reading from the New Living Translation. So in short, the same standards don't apply at all to those outside of our community. In fact, what Paul basically just said was that Christians are encouraged to stay in friendly, active contact with unbelievers regardless of their behavior. We're not shunning them or pushing them away at all. Instead, we are inviting them in. Continuing in verse 12, Paul goes on to say that, quote, It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 17 verse 7 here, you must remove the evil person from among you, unquote. In short, it's not even our job to evaluate what is or isn't sin outside of our fellowship. We have a standard of behavior that we have a right to enforce only within our group, and that has to be done out of love and gentleness. Once we go outside our own community, we have very little, if any, jurisdiction, and we need to remain aware of that. If we're going to engage the non-Christian world about sin, by my count, we have four legitimate bases on which to do that. And if none of these particular situations apply, our best course of action, biblically, is to mind our own business and work on being the best examples of Jesus' love that we can be in ourselves. So the first exception to that isn't even so much about opposing the actions of the outside world, so much as it's about taking a stand with our own actions. Sometimes a believer is compelled by an outsider to do something against his or her own conscience. This could be because of peer pressure or the law, or maybe your employer's wishes, or a bunch of other reasons. The point is that you will encounter situations where you're expected to do something that you know you shouldn't do. The thing to do here is to strike a balance between setting good boundaries that uphold your standard of behavior for yourself, and also displaying gentleness and humility. The goal isn't to condemn others for their actions. Once again, you can't make them abstain, and their behavior isn't ultimately your responsibility, but your behavior is. And whatever the personal cost ends up being, your job is to do what's right, whatever it is that God would want you to do. In short, all you can do is follow Jesus the best you can, without compromise, but also without being a jerk about it. So often believers make a big fuss about being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, but half the time what we're being persecuted for is our own childish reactions. Another way to put that is if they're going to hate you, make sure it's for the right reasons. Be gracious, be kind. That's the way to represent Jesus well. The second exception here is when the secular society around us happens to agree with the biblical standard that we're trying to uphold. Though they may be defined a bit differently sometimes, the Bible isn't the only book that outlaws things like murder and theft. Where the government and the Bible agree that something is wrong, then all of us can easily oppose it. 
Honestly, if you find yourself in that position, you're not even really doing it as a Christian. You could just as easily oppose it as a citizen. And that's a much easier position to defend because then you're playing according to their rules that they have already agreed to. If you don't have to get lost in all these arguments about the authority of the Bible and what Jesus would do, then I say don't bother. Stand against that sin, that injustice, whatever it is, not necessarily as a Christian, but as a concerned member of the society who happens to also be a Christian. As long as the end result is that the world you live in has more justice and less sin going on, I would call that a win, regardless of what line of reasoning brings you there. Third, kind of along those same lines, the Bible is full of commands to be a voice for the voiceless, to advocate on behalf of widows and orphans, to defend the defenseless, particularly in the books written by the Old Testament prophets. In other words, we don't defend ourselves against our enemies. We don't even really defend ourselves against God's enemies, and we're certainly not called to defend him against anyone because he can take care of himself. But what we are called to take an active stand against is when other people are being oppressed in one way or another. Once again, this isn't so much about upholding a moral standard or condemning the oppressor, so much as it's about showing love for the victims in a situation. Whoever's being downtrodden or mistreated, they're also loved by God and deserve our help simply because he cares for them. And that means, yes, we campaign for different laws that treat disadvantaged people more fairly. But even more than that, it means we need to be on the forefront of whatever kind of relief that they need. The Bible tells us to feed the hungry. It doesn't just tell us to make sure somebody else feeds them. Honestly, we should be doing both to whatever degree that we can. And that includes taking a stand against favoritism, racism, sexism, and all the other isms out there that mistreat people and create unfair environments to exploit them. The buzzwords for this type of outlook lately have been that it's woke or it's about social justice. And you know what? If you get called those things and you're doing God's work, great. I don't really care about the buzzwords. What this is is just acting biblically toward disadvantaged people groups. God commands us to take action in those situations to make sure that the people around us are being treated with dignity and fairness. And anyone who tells you that that's not in the Bible probably hasn't read the Bible. Now the fourth and last scenario is that there may be times when a believer is called by God to take a stand specifically on the authority of what God is saying about a moral issue in the broader culture that they live in, but I want to stress to you that this is an incredibly rare thing. So rare, in fact, that I almost didn't mention it. What I'm describing isn't the job of the everyday Christian. It's more what it would look like to be a modern-day actual prophet like the guys in the Bible who did this kind of thing. And even they did it rarely. I don't know that this happens frequently in our day and time, but I also can't say that this was strictly only for Bible times. The guidelines here are, first of all, that the message you give has to be in line not only with what the Bible says, but with the heart of God as he's revealed himself. He's gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in love. And if you're going to be a prophet, if you're going to have that kind of ministry, you have to display his heart to the people that you address. Even further beyond that, before engaging in this kind of messaging, you should be perfectly sure, not only that your message is in agreement with God's perspective on the subject at hand, but that he has definitely commissioned you of all people to deliver that message in that context at that moment. Because once you start saying, thus saith the Lord, you can't take those words back. 
and it's a very serious thing to claim to speak directly for God. Also, if he hasn't specifically appointed you to give that word in that context, then instead of helping people see the light, you're more likely to push them away from God just by forcing them to make a decision that he might not have prepared their hearts to make. And by the way, even if you are divinely commissioned to deliver moral instruction to the unbelieving world around you, do not be surprised if they don't listen. Once again, they don't play by our rules, and they haven't agreed to submit to God's leadership in any respect. So, if they do listen, if they do repent, then you've just experienced a bona fide miracle. I'm not saying it won't happen like that. I actually think it might. If it does, let me know. I would love to hear your story. And that, my friends, is the rule book for how to confront sin in other people. Hopefully it was both stricter and more liberating than you expected. If it's only one of those things, I probably missed something. And on that note, there was a lot that I still had to leave out because, like I said, this is an incredibly delicate and complicated topic. So if you have follow-up questions, please send them my way. As a reminder, my contact info is in the description of every episode, and I am open to feedback of pretty much any kind. Also, if you're not subscribed yet, I'd like to invite you to do that right now, so that you won't miss our next topic of discussion. In two weeks, we're going to take a look at the ancient art of fasting, and all that that entails. Please join me then, and meanwhile, thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast, conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time.